SEOs often view digital PR as the holy grail of link building. Getting hundreds of links from DR90 plus sites is a surefire way to improve your SEO. And today's guest has done this for hundreds of sites. Her name is Stacey McNaught and she does intelligent digital PR campaigns with the explicit goal of building links. I first saw Stacy speak at the Chiang Mai SEO conference back in 2019 and I was blown away by her talk. So if you want to seriously level up your link building game, then today's episode is going to be a good one. Welcome to the Authority Hacker Podcast. And now your hosts, Gail Breton and Mark Webster. Today's guest is Stacy McNaught from stacymcnaught.co.uk. Welcome to the show, Stacey. Hey, okay. Just so people can get an idea of the kind of link building you do, can you tell us about some of the sites you've gotten links from over the years? Yeah, I mean, the last few weeks, independent.co.uk, rd.com, Mashable. Uh, so, we, you know, we, we're after the big ones, really. So these are some of the absolute cream of the cream, top tier one sites that, that, that you're building links from. And can you give us an idea of how much you pay when you factor in all the campaign costs and, and time in some of these campaigns? Yeah, over the last year, the average for us was $35. $35. I'm sure most people <laughs> listening agree that that's an absolute steal for these kind of tier, <laughs> tier one. Everyone will be will be eager to, to learn how exactly you do this. Just to put this into perspective, I think our average cost per link and our, the, the DR we're getting at, at the moment, you know, in the in the sort of 50s on, on average, we're paying sort of 40 to $60 and that's for outreach-based, lower quality stuff. Yeah. So I, I'm here to learn today too, hopefully. Can you, just before we get into the tactics though, can you tell us how you got into this and, and maybe tell us a bit more about your, your journey? Yeah, absolutely. So in 2009, I was freelance copywriting and that's kind of what I really enjoy, to be honest, is content creation, writing. That's, that's my thing. And tons of my clients were starting to ask about SEO. So I was like, better figure this crap out. Uh, self-taught a little bit. I thought there's quite a lot to this. And then I went and took a trainee role with an agency in Manchester. And I think if I'm being honest, my intention was probably a year or two, figure it out and then go back to the freelance copywriting. But within a couple of weeks, I was, I was having the time of my life, to be honest. I thought this is quite a lot of fun. The One of the co-founders, Kevin, who trained me, actually, is still one of the smartest people I've ever worked with, uh, you know, even as, as of today. And he had number ones in like really competitive insurance and finance spaces in the UK. Granted, pretty pretty black hat stuff, but pretty much just threw me straight in the deep end. Like, just go figure this out, go do it. Here's some basic information that you need. Now go make it happen. And it's exactly the kind of training that I needed. And fell in love with like the competitive side of it and thought, yeah, absolutely. Definitely see myself making a career here and ended up with that agency actually for uh, nine years. I was on the board at the point at which I resigned and went solo. But yeah, pretty much from copywriting and then accidentally into SEO. And what we, what's your role today? Do you still get involved in some of the copywriting or are you just overseeing everything? Not as much as I would like. So the, I've got a small consultancy now, there's six of us. And we work from just outside Manchester, office, fairly rural location, uh, away from the city centre. And my first hire actually was my mum, who's now doing SEO for us. So about... Still probably about two thirds of what we do is client work and we're gradually moving over to doing more of our own affiliate and lead gen projects. So I'm a little bit more hands on with things like the copy on some of those. But in reality now, most of the copy we do, we've got in-house copywriters who pick most of that up for clients. I'm involved heavily in the strategy side. We get some freelance support where we need it. 
definitely don't do as much of the copy these days as as I would like, to be honest. You mentioned you you hired your mum as your, your first employee. That's really interesting. Do you think that means that it's easy for people to learn this stuff? Or do you have to have a certain mindset or a way of thinking to to get good at, at this type of link building? Uh, well, I probably didn't plan to hire my mum first. I think what happened is when I first went freelance, sort of like very, very early in 2018, when it was just me, I was obviously doing all the copy, most of the outreach myself. My mum was giving me a hand like shooting some emails out and stuff like that. We then went to, I went to my mum one day and just sort of said, yeah, I could do a bit more help with this really. You know, just do, do you fancy picking up a little bit of extra? So she's like, well, I'll, I can do it for you informally. Just tell me what I need to do. Went through it with her. She was sending emails out. Then she messaged me one day saying like, oh, I've just changed the wording on that a little bit. I've just made it sound a bit friendlier. I was like, and she started getting better response rates than me with friendly hellos. So I was like, okay, this kind of communicating with, journalists and, and sort of website owners is probably her thing really asked her to do some more formal freelance for me and at the time she was employed and she was like I just can't commit to it so in the end it kind of coincided that she was looking for a new role closer to home at around about the same time I was looking for a permanent hire so we're like let's just give this a go so her role is very much on the outreach desk research for content side of things uh, as opposed to the technical side by her own admission no interest in the technical side whatsoever. Probably can't pronounce canonical that well, but definitely great on the outreach side. And I think that because SEO has now become so demanding in terms of a skill set, there's so many different areas. You generally, I don't think, find that many all-rounders these days. People tend to do bits of it. Then you can you can absolutely find people with great communication skills who've got no experience whatsoever in any sort of outreach or content creation and and give them those or give them the knowledge basically to turn their skills to that particular task. I think yeah, that's that can be done quite effectively. I think. Do you think that all SEOs should now be considering moving into this kind of digital PR realm as well? No, I think it's important that as an SEO team you've got some of that capability or some of that understanding. But for me, it's not necessary for every single campaign. You know, if, if your job is working with small businesses who've got a local presence and they're competing with other very small businesses whose backlink profile is maybe only made up of 10 or 20 domains, then they don't need to be running thousands of pounds worth of campaigns to land hundreds of pounds, like hundreds and hundreds of links on top tier websites. I think it's all relative. So there's definitely some cases where you need to be doing some of the PRE work but I don't think it's for all of them. And I think we're actually as an industry, maybe it's a little bit too eager to jump into selling PR as the answer to SEO problems. So where do you typically start when you're assessing a, a website, when you're trying to decide, okay, what do I want to do here? Yeah. So, I mean, we all obviously start with things like keyword research, competitor analysis. Our client will give us a list of objectives that we'll reverse engineer into traffic that we need to reach our audiences we need to reach and if it's a competitive space we know that we're going to be very very quickly looking at battling profiles we'll take a look at what it looks like it's going to take to rank based on what competitors have done and where they're currently at and if you've got a brand who's already done a ton of pr in the past they've already nailed all these big tier top tier links and we see a lot of that actually brands will come to us and say we've got links on all these sites and we're still not ranking it's filling in the gaps. So where, what have they not got yet? What can we improve? We usually start with the on-site stuff, at least the very basic on-site stuff before we do tons and tons of link building. But it's just, I think it's mostly a gap analysis. Like why is someone doing better than you are 
and what do we need to fill those gaps and go one further? Um, so, and it's not always PR. So specifically, if you're looking at a site that, let's say, doesn't have all of these these great links, but perhaps you think needs to, where do you go from there? Do you have an arsenal of tactics which you you kind of go through or what's the thought process? We do, yeah. So for sites that are lagging behind in the link area, we've got a few different tactics we'll use. If they're an e-com site and they've got product that they can place, then we like product placements or going after journalists who've done gift roundups or interiors roundups and things like that and sort of either proactively contacting them and saying right we've got this new product that our clients launched or an existing product we think could be perfect for one of your roundups and the success rates and that can be really high particularly if you can tailor it for a gifting season so at the moment it's mostly we're finding going through client websites and working out what exactly can be um pitched as a mother's day gift for march and surprising everything can be pitched as a mother's day gift so that's always quite a good start point for product where there's no product so how do you just just as you're on on that how do you actually find those journalists uh do you do you have a system to to go through or do you use ahrefs or do you have any other tools that you you use yeah we'll use we use some media databases to find email addresses once we've found the names but then actually one of the simplest ways is just to head off to google news Type in, say, Mother's Day gifts, set the date range for six weeks before Mother's Day last year and see who did the roundups. If you've got, say, a furniture product, let's say you're selling luxury beds, then off you go to Google News. I wouldn't type in luxury beds because if they've just done luxury beds, they're probably not doing it again next week, but something similar. So, you know, it could be other bedroom furniture, who's done dressing tables. And you'll find a list of Google News websites where they're covering roundups like that. So we'll take the journalist's name from there. If the email address is available, great. Otherwise, we'll usually run it through a media database and find it that way. But the Google News route is pretty straightforward. And then actually, a lot of journalists are proactively going out to um, media inquiry websites and putting out requests for what they want. So the likes of Response Source in the UK, Press Plugs in the UK, Harrow and, yeah, quoted Harrow really, I suppose, in the US. But there's different databases everywhere where journalists are putting the requests through. I mean, over the last four or five weeks, Response Source has probably sent out about 40 or 50 requests for Valentine's gifts. So that sort of thing is pretty straightforward to reply to. Five or 10 minute job if you've prepared, you know, a bank of images already. And also for e-com sites, Press Loft is pretty good. So with Press Loft, you just upload all your product images, all your product spec, put the links onto your website and journalists will either contact you there or even sometimes just download your images and you find the product has turned up in a roundup somewhere. So, yeah, I think, uh, but for me, a, a good starting point, even with all the tools in the world, it's great to have the likes of response source and press plugs and people emailing you. Um, it's competitive if they've emailed, you know, if I've got the email through response source, so have the 93 gazillion other people who subscribe to receive them. So your replies have got to be really quick. Uh, you know that you're not guaranteed uh, to get in there. The proactive stuff of actually rounding up the journalists that have talked about similar sort of things to you and going to them, I think can be really effective. And even if they're not planning to do the exact thing right now, we've had plenty where they've said, you know, we're not doing that for a while. However, here's a list of things that we have got coming up if you've got clients that meet those needs. And I imagine journalists maybe get a lot of these kinds of emails. Do you have a specific way you approach them so that you you stand out or how do you get noticed? Main thing is going to be the subject there, really. So I tend to go with a get straight to the point. 
And I think with journalists, there's never really a right or wrong answer. There's probably 10 million things I've been told by one person I should do and by somebody else I shouldn't do. There's journalists who will say, please don't send us attachments. They just clog my inbox. Others are like, just attach a small image. <laughs> you get people who say, don't give us a how are you doing intro. And others who are like, let's make some small talk. Person, I think I hope you're well is, is pretty harmless. And, you know, most of the time I gen- genuinely do hope they're well. So I think the subject is the main thing. And I'm, I'm a fan of get to the point. So if it's like I'm looking for a placement in Mother's Day gift roundup, I'd be like premium product suggestion for Mother's Day gift roundup. And it's, it is that. It's like you, you know what you're going to get when you open the email. Um, I use mail track to track opens on emails. And I think if we find after the first sort of 20 or 30 that opens look a little bit lower than we're used to, then you can go and tweak the subject. But it's all in there. And then what we do as well is we're quick. So if a journalist has something that's – if it's for Mother's Day, fine. We know it's going to be a while since it's going live. But we do sometimes contact people who will say, well, actually, yeah, this is going live, but I need it like yesterday. So we already at the start of the campaign, we're preparing – Google Drive folders with headshots of the business founders, biographies, high-spec imagery of all the products that we need. So we can literally just send that ready to go all in one. So I think it's the email subject straight to the point in the email body for me and all the assets ready to go. So there's as little back and forth as possible. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that, that's product placements then. What, what else have you got in your arsenal? So you can do people placement, uh, an expert comment. Uh, that can apply whether a client's got or your website's got product or not. So again, response source, press plugs, they're all really useful here. Journalists are not medically qualified. They're not legally qualified. uh, They're not financially qualified generally. So if they're writing content where it will probably almost certainly fall into that your money, your life category, uh, you know, good journalism practice is that you get the expert on board to give you the information that you need and the credibility. So you'll see tons of requests through these media inquiry sources for a doctor to comment on this or a pharmacist to comment on this or we want a lawyer to comment on this. Some of them are as simple as we want somebody who's had a really crap time due to Brexit to talk about their business. So I subscribe to those, place people all the time. And again, proactive people placement. So when we're talking to the start of a campaign, talking to clients about product at the same time, we're talking about people, backstories, you know, schools they've come from, the universities, the towns, local press love a little bit of a good success story on the business. And again, proactively pitching. So off to Google News, find somebody who has written an article recently that just says according to plus doctor or something like that. And you know these people are using third-party sources. So sometimes just proactively getting in touch with an introduction, just saying that we're representing this person here. This is their area of expertise. You know, if we can help, just give us a shout. We've got everything prepped and ready to go. And the aim there really for us is actually to have people coming to us in the end looking for this comment which happens quite a lot and reasonably quickly I think with journalists if you can give them what they want quickly and they're familiar with getting exactly the information that they need at the time they need it no faffing no messing no missed deadlines they're not having to try and bodge imagery together themselves because you failed to deliver I think if you can be quick and efficient actually it's easier for them just to come back to you next time. So that's the point we like to get to, is that they're sort of coming to us saying, this is going live, can you help? I think a lot of 
SEOs are maybe a little bit fearful about talking to to journalists. Can you maybe, you obviously do this a lot, can you give us a bit of an insight into what does the mindset of a journalist look like? What are their constraints and what do they really want from from people like us? Yeah, well, here's the variable. Again, I think, you know, I speak to some and I guess it also depends whether they're freelance or whether they're staff journalists. But, you know, we speak to some staff journalists who've got seven or eight pieces of content in a day to get out as standard, you know, on a pretty normal day. So actually, from you, what they want is to make that as easy as possible. So if you've got a story they want or you've got a comment that they want, generally it's turn it around fast all the information or we tend to send slightly more information than they might need and they can take the bits that they need all the images immediately and kind of making sure I think a bugbear that I've consistently been told is when someone pitches an expert it's like yeah 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 we'll get all this done we'll sort out a telephone interview with you or we'll sort out the comment today and then actually you know come five o'clock the journalist chasing saying I really need this there's a deadline and that's an absolute bugbear I think of everybody's but if you're pitching an expert for that sort of comment, it's just make sure you've got everything quickly. If you're pitching content, I think it's just make sure that actually you've got the right journalist. I think there's plenty of examples. You'll see journalists tweeting about getting irrelevant press releases. And if you're only using a media database and you're not doing any manual checking or filtering, it's really easy to end up sending somebody something irrelevant. Best case scenario, if you send someone something irrelevant, they just delete it. Um, what you don't want is the arty response. But I think ultimately with new content ideas, it's is it something relevant? And a question that we tend to get more frequently, I think, lately, particularly with with data-driven uh, studies and things, is can we have some sort of exclusivity on this? That comes up quite a lot. Can, can I have this uniquely? And actually, exclusivity sometimes just means that they can run it before you do your press release, even if it's just minutes before. So it's not necessarily. Do you recommend other people allow sites to do that or allow journalists to do, do that? Or do you try and get out to as many people as possible? The thing is, like once you see it all the time with like the Daily Mail, the Daily Mail runs something and everybody copies it anyway. You know, loads of other press then just come in and copy this. So I think it can be it can be a way that you can be confident. If the outlet is big enough, you can be pretty confident that there's going to be coverage off the back of that as well. So I think there's definitely a benefit to doing so. If you can almost guarantee that, first top tier piece there's a little bit comes from that on the flip side if what you've got is really time sensitive very very newsworthy but needs to go out on a given day then on at that point i would be inclined to say yeah no sorry it's, it's going to everybody <laughs> but take it on a case by case and for me i generally don't have too much of a problem with it we don't tend to do too much stuff where this has to be today it's got to be today i don't like that pressure <laughs> you know if something goes wrong your internet goes down or you know, we had a, a case where a friend of mine was about to launch a campaign on stillbirth and whatnot. And she just happened to have a launch date in a diary of the same date that Kate Middleton went into labor. There's nobody covering stillbirth while Kate Middleton's in labor. So it's the whole thing like that. I'm not really keen on campaigns where it has to be a certain day. I like I like a backup shot to go again. And if you have a list of journalists, do you go for the the BBC, the, the, the tier one journalists the tier one publications first or do you generally go for the lower like local sites maybe local papers and try and kind of get the story out there so it, it spreads that way go top tier first generally if we've got something that's only of local interest then local press first but there's also like there's a lot of if you go to the bbc and you look in their local news sections and read the stories there you'll see loads of links at the bottom that refer to where something was first covered 
quite a lot. Um, you know, source, sources and external links and things. And there's plenty of nationals that are taking their news from local press, that are finding news from local press. So sometimes reverse engineering that a little bit and going taking a look at actually if you're struggling with these top tiers, where are they getting their news from? If you're convinced the story's definitely right, but you're just knocking on the wrong doors, then sometimes hitting those locals first can be a way to get through. And I think it is a case, it's always variable project by project. And I think that's probably one of my biggest frustrations with the PR-centric link building tactics, actually, is there's a little bit of a lack of scale. <laughs> it's always going to be quite bespoke and there can be a lot of back and forth with journalists and a lot of reverse engineering where certain journalists seem to get their news from. But it, it, you know, it can and, and often does pay off. You mentioned a little while ago about data-driven studies. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, I mean, the first time I started doing anything like this was about 2010. And the agency I was at at the time, and it predates any publicly available Google data on mobile usage and mobile web traffic. We did a very, very primitive study, which was basically we combined all of the analytics data that we had access to across all of our clients and went back a few months to look at the proportion of web traffic that was coming from mobile and to look at the the growth of that. And you're talking sort of 2010, 2011, at which point, obviously, the iPhone was just sort of starting to pick up some real popularity. And obviously, web traffic from mobile was hugely on the rise. So we got some quite nice stories, put it out, optimized things for things like mobile web traffic statistics and whatnot, and started getting, did a little bit of outreach, got some really good coverage, and then started finding competitors linking to our site and links from people who by rights should definitely not want to link to us just because they'd found the stats piece and then we updated it a few months later and then not long after that google gave us loads of absolute millions of data and all the think with google sections of the website started going live and there was all this other data that was far better than what we had so there was no point updating it again by that point but that had kind of given us the ha okay actually if you've got data People are always looking for a resource, but actually sometimes you can spin that and make it a story as well. And we repeated it in 2014 with a um, survey-led piece where we questioned people about how many times a day they pick up their phone. But instead of just asking that, we, we listed all these tasks and said, how many times a day do you do each of these things on your phone? You ask people how, you know, how many times a day they pick the phone, they're going to underestimate greatly. And we found it was something like 200 and odd times a day and that one went everywhere. I mean, that was hundreds and hundreds of links in the first couple of weeks and still growing. So then we started doing this for clients everywhere at the agency. I was like, it was, you can pretty much make a story out of any piece of data, really, um, either survey-based or you can use Google Trends or Google Keyword Data. There's all kinds of different data banks, freedom of information that you can use to go and find a little story hidden in a number somewhere. But I think the reason that I've really stuck with data as opposed to too much else is the uses that you can have without having to do any outreach. So actually, we do tons and tons of stuff now with data and statistics pieces where we don't do any outreach. And these pieces are getting 100 plus 200 links just because we're treating it like we would a product landing page, but we're optimizing for a different audience. So if we produce one of our editorial sort of test sites is microbizmag.co.uk. And on there, we test a lot of statistics pieces. So there's a page on there that ranks pretty well. I might have the featured snippet for startup statistics. And 
it's a really simple piece. We did a single question Google survey, which cost about $80 maybe. And we did some keyword research, used some third party statistics. It's not mind blowing. We launched it and we did a little tiny bit of outreach to one or two sites who wanted to cover the thing, the, the, the question that we'd asked. We'd asked a question about whether, we'd asked employees whether they had ambition to start their own business. So we found a couple of little sites that were happy for us to write about that and got the first couple of links manually. And then it started ranking top 10. And obviously, the more these pieces rank, the more people who are searching startup statistics are finding it and linking to it. And then before you know it, you've either got a feature snippet or a position one or two, and it's dealing with links on its own. So I think we're 90 to 100 links on that one now with literally an hour and a half of outreach at the start. $80 spent on the content plus about two hours. And we've repeated that then for different topics. We do this for clients in healthcare, finance. That kind of thing works in any sector because I guess the slight difference between creating a statistics piece to just rank it and let it link passively versus doing the outreach is that when you do the outreach on a statistics piece, you're trying to be the story. Whereas when you just let people link to it, your background, your context, you're a resource. But, you know, when you go and look at if you just as a standard web user, you go off and just read the BBC or you read any website. I mean, that is that is how the web links resources. So I think Mm. if we make 100 percent of our focus on being the story constantly, aside from the fact that there's some scale issues with it, it also isn't a particularly realistic way in my view of of representation of how people link online you know people link to resources it's not always about you being front and center sometimes it's just that you're a background stat and on most of the stats pieces that we do the links are always according to research or the anchor text over something like x number of startups or freelance skills most in demand and it's someone talking about a similar topic they're not talking about you they're using a figure of yours and just citing the source properly and for us, that's been really scalable. Probably over the last three or four years, we've done a lot of that. And it's one of those areas that doesn't seem to change. But I mean, you can go back and look at content on the web from 2005. And that's, it's never changed. That's just how people cite their sources. So you mentioned there about Google survey, was it? Can you actually get people to respond in there, like pay for responses? Yeah, it's around about $80 for a thousand responses to general audience. It's really cheap. It's really cheap. Yeah, it is. Obviously, with different survey, there's loads of different channels for surveys. And you can vary from, yeah, $80 for a thousand responses with Google surveys up to paying a few thousand for a few questions with the likes of OnePoll or YouGov or CensusWide. And I think there's there's use cases for, for them all. I think if you're trying to be front and center and you're trying to be the story, then having an accredited market research company behind your data is important. And actually, when we've pitched data-driven stories to press before, particularly the sort of tier ones, sometimes you will get, tell us a bit about this study and who did it for you and why. And, and you get asked for the data and you get asked questions. I actually once had a journalist ask if they could contact the survey provider to verify that they had done the survey. So there's definitely a case for using a big survey company like that if you're doing a PR piece. If it's a piece that you just want to rank and leave, then you know something like googlesurveys.com is fine. 
uh, census-wide now some of the and and some of the survey providers now do single question surveys and they're more like 100 to 200 pounds for one to two thousand responses so you can do content quickly and cheaply and that way i think it becomes really feasible to do really low cost data content with a survey google surveys is a winner because you just log in set it up yourself you don't have to speak to an account manager it's just done and what you get back is quite a nice panel graphs i mean we tend to make our own graphs anyway and you can manipulate the data in the panel yourself so the limitation obviously if you've ever answered a google survey is that you're trying to get to a piece of content when this question flashes up in your face so you click whatever the hell you have to click to get rid of that and watch the youtube video you were trying to get to so i think that's why we generally wouldn't use google surveys for something we're going to go to press with and it kind of reminds me of the situation we had with a, one of our websites many many years ago so we had this article about the negative effects of of coffee of caffeine and it just got so many links. We ranked number one for that term for a few years. And it just got so many links from journalists who would go to Google, search for negative effects of coffee, and then because they're writing an article about it, and then reference it. So do you find that you kind of have to be up there, number one, or you know, pay for ads or something to get kind of like evergreen traffic or evergreen links from those statistics pieces? Yeah, it's definitely about ranking it. So I think that we're at a point now with MicroBizMag, generally speaking, where if we put something live, it's going to rank on the statistics side. So we don't need to worry about it too much anymore. But we did um, did one for a company called Fourth With Life a couple of years ago on stress statistics. They do home blood test kits. One of their key ones is cortisol. So we talked about stress. And when we first went live with that piece, it's like, well, we're page two to three. It's not going to get anything, even with quite stress statistics is quite a large query in the context of stats queries. And we did manual outreach there and landed a few impress, which in turn got that to sort of position five and six. And then once they start picking links up themselves, it kind of becomes self-fulfilling for a period. But we've done plenty where we've worked with sites that have no visibility yet. And yet ads are a really good way to go first. The limitation being if it's a really low volume query then actually sometimes you just can't even get your ad to show. Google does this thing where, you know, now nah, you can't have that one, but you could just rank for this massive broad query that, you know, covers everything instead. But if you've got a big enough query on the stats side, and it's not just stats, like templates work well, things like negative effects of caffeine, people, you know, health-related uh, research content, that stuff tends to, if you've got enough volume and you can advertise on it, then absolutely, perfectly valid way to get, that same traffic it's i think what we tend to do as seos and you see this all the time people will do a pr piece that's data driven and it's really good and absolutely smashes it in the press and then you go back to it and look six months later and the link profile is very much that there were all these links over that week or two and then nothing since and it can just be something as simple as the title is something creative they come within a creative meeting. It doesn't say statistics. It doesn't say facts. It doesn't say data. And you just know, and we've tested it on some clients' pages before, just change the page title. And that piece ranks for statistics queries and then continues to passively generate links afterwards. And I think it's because we, we I don't know whether it's because it's different teams. I'm not, I'm not sure why it happens. But if we're doing keyword research for a commercial landing page, on one of our own sites or a client site, then every SEO everywhere is going off and finding the keywords that people are typing. They're thinking about search intent. They're thinking this person wants to buy this thing. And I think as an industry, we're shit hot at that. Like, you know, there's so much amazing content out there now and great examples of smart keyword research and 
everyone's got a pretty good understanding, I think, of search intent. And then when we do these PR pieces, it's like we just forget all that. It's like, oh, it, it sings and it dances and it's great and it looks fab and it's made the news. But actually, if you bring it back to basics, it's kind of the same thing for us. We're still trying to win a certain audience who are in search. We're not expecting them to buy something. We're trying to find people whose search intent is to find a resource. And I think that actually there's tons of creative content that happens in this space that does a job from a PR point of view and then stops generating links the moment it's finished because that bit hasn't been done. And I've never really been able to figure out why why that doesn't get done. But I think probably if you go and look at any of the data-driven stuff that makes the news today or that's made the news in the last six months and you go and look at the website and look at the asset on the, that company's website, indefinitely over half of those cases, I'd be confident that you'd find the page has not been optimized to have any long-term rankability or to drive traffic long-term. And I can't get my head around why it happens because as SEOs, we're good. Do you think it's maybe because like agency PR type people tend to focus more on like the short-term wins and, and showing what they can show maybe for the length of their six-month or one-year contract versus you know, if you're doing it for your own site, you'd care more about the long term rather than just the short term. Yeah, I think there's definitely a part of that. We see it within houses as well. And I'm not sure whether it's because, well, because it does sit with PR teams as opposed to traditional SEO teams. I think a lot of it would depend on how you structure something. Like in here, we're, we all work in the same space. You know, everyone's obviously outside of COVID, a few working at home at the minute, but everyone's in the same space. So it's like you can shout something across. If someone's working on a PR piece of content, it's like, do you fancy just looking some keywords up for me for this? And if it's not their bag or if you've got someone who sit, would, by their own sort of definition of what they do, they sit on the PR side, they're great at the creative, they're great at talking to journalists, maybe not that good at search intent analysis or reverse engineering what somebody might want, then actually just making sure it's plugged into the SEO team beyond a link report at the end can mean that these, these PR assets can continue to generate links passively over time. And that, that's where your real scale comes in, I think. And it's quite a difficult sell for me, for myself, when we're doing our own websites to sort of, I don't do much digital PR at all on our own assets. Our best ranking assets have been ranked off passive links through statistics queries, creative commons image link building for the, for the most part. Because for me, it's like, okay, I might land 100 links if we absolutely smash something on this big campaign. It could take days and days and there's all these fancy graphics and or we could just do this on a much smaller scale and rank it. And OK, it might take longer to get there, but then those 100 links might happen over a year rather than over the week. But then tomorrow I can put another piece out and the day after another piece out and scale that way. And for me, that just is much more practical and much more enjoyable. I think outreach actually is I really don't like outreach and I really don't like doing it. I really don't like making people do it. I just don't enjoy the process. And I think if I can build links with as little of that as possible, then I'm all for it. So t tell us more about this Creative Commons image link building then. Yeah, this is my favorite, I think. So again, going back probably close to 10 years that we've been doing it was the idea being just that you create a bank of images that you license under Creative Commons distribute them in such a way that they get picked up. And we use Flickr for that. I can talk about that in a minute. And people just use Creative Commons images as they do on blogs, news sites, business websites, pick up Creative Commons images. The idea is that they credit you with the link as per uh, your attribution request. And in 96% of cases, they won't do it right the first time. 
So the real areas of process here for us are researching what kind of images you can build to get links, getting them optimized. And as, as I say, we use Flickr and we keep coming back to Flickr. We've tried hundreds of other things and we keep coming back to getting this bank of images and uploading it to Flickr for a few reasons. You set your default license, Creative Commons, bar a few months last year where when Google uh, updated image search and Flickr's licensing didn't seem quite right. They rank pretty well in image search, particularly for the filtered image search when you're looking for Creative Commons. And there's a ready-made audience there. And, you know, you use your title, your Flickr title when you're uploading is becomes the page title. Your Flickr description becomes the meta description. And there's a, a neat little description box there where you can put an attribution request that specifies exactly how you want attributing. So Flickr sort of just takes care of it all. So we, we do keep coming back to Flickr to host these images. We've done self-hosting. We've done all sorts. I've seen recently people using Unsplash. And we had a go at that. But the... The thing with Unsplash, I guess, is you're distributing an image, which people are being told they can use freely without attribution. But it would be nice if you did, but they don't have to. But and then you're going saying to someone, you know, will you attribute after all? For me, like our response rates, we've only done a couple of very small tests, but our response rates for going after people who found an image on Unsplash have been significantly lower than people who found one of our images on Flickr are on uh, Wikimedia Commons uh, when they're looking for Creative Commons images. But yeah, the idea is basically, what images can I create in this space? How do you find that? How do you determine what images to, to create? Do you have a process? Yeah, we go about it much like we do for creative content. So if we're working on a website that's like, let's say we're, we're doing Microbiz Mag's images, we're mind mapping. So in the middle, we're talking to small businesses and freelancers. And then we're looking at all the different areas they care about. So, you know, working from home, remote working was a big area. They care about building a website, marketing, HR. And then we look at different images we could produce in those areas. And one of the biggest areas that we looked at actually for MicroBizMag earlier on this year was we did a bank of work from home images. Probably the same week that work from home was not enforced, was issued as guidance in the UK. And so the timing was really good for that sort of thing. But we'll mind map it the same as we with the content. So these are the topic areas that we're interested in. Then we'll go off to Google and we'll start typing into Google some of just some of those keywords around that topic to see what images already rank in image search, whether they're any good. If we filter by Creative Commons, you often find that there's loads of images for a normal image search. And then as soon as you filter by Creative Commons, it, everything disappears and you're left with a load of crap. So we'll use that as a starting point then to say, actually, in these topic areas, these are the keywords where people might be looking for images that don't have much Creative Commons imagery. There's not much there. So then we know loosely what kind of keyword we'd like to meet the intent of with our image. So we know roughly what kind of topic Im images we want. Then a bit of inspiration, we'll go off to like Alami or Shutterstock or Getty and take a look there for those kind of keywords. What images are showing up? Which ones are the best sellers? What are people prepared to pay for? So what kind of quality do we want? Do those sites have statistics on which ones are the best sellers? We reverse image search them. So we'll just do a quick okay. Google image reverse image search and see which ones are most in use. Nice. And that gives us an idea as to what people, what kind of imagery people actually want and are prepared to pay for. And that then becomes the basis of a list of images that we're going to go off and produce. And most of the time for us, it's like it can be done in a light box. The idea is that we can do it in a light box in the office. If we're doing anything outdoors, it's usually quite easy to replicate. It's usually props rather than people. If it's people, we tend to just use backs of heads and whatnot just because 
you know, nobody wants to find out that they're a stock model one day by accident on the internet. And I think that like, just, you can pretty much do this for any sector. I think you really can. We've not very often had a complicated um, shoot. There was, we've got a dancewear client and we wanted some imagery of a ballet dancer. And obviously you can't just get someone in the office to do that. But they had a catalogue shoot coming up. So they were like, we can do this for you <laughs> and send them over to you. Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot here. So yeah. it, let's say we had a, a paintball website. Yeah. How would you do it for, for that? So I'd take a look at when people are looking for paintball. I'd be The same way I would start with content really is my map middle paintball. So you're looking at sport, you're looking at adrenaline, probably ties into why would people go, things like stag do's, birthdays, stuff like that. So I look at all those areas first with something very specific around like paintball being very, very specific. You can look for action shots. So the, the really obvious ones are, is someone, are there actually Creative Commons images already of people doing paintball? Are they any good? Are they in use? And if the answer is loads of people are using images of people doing paintball, there's not very many good Creative Commons ones. They're a bit crap. But you think, well, straight away, that's an immediately obvious one that you could do. You could go further I and mean, you can do all like the the um, stuff like that always gets used remarkably well is people searching for stuff on a computer. So we did loads of this with health, like, you know, someone holding a mobile phone, typing in fitness app and stuff. And that gets used all the time. And you always think it wouldn't because you just think if someone needed an image like that, they could make it themselves in five minutes. But they don't. They just want to, and I've done it myself, you know, go to Google Images, find something and use it and get the bloody blog post live. Uh, so you can you can do people looking for that sort of thing. You could do you could go wider adrenaline stuff, I suppose. You could sort of look people looking for adrenaline sports. People we've used children's uh, building blocks with letters on. We've done whenever we did we did stuff for um, road traffic accidents, and we used Hot Wheels and Matchbox cars to replicate some pretty gory accidents, and they got used really well. So I think it's always a combination of something that looks a little bit, what well, looks good, looks a little bit different to what's out there. You can create it easily. Um, but we also expect, I mean, there's no process perfect at all. And we've got some image banks where we've got 100 images and there's only five doing all the work. So we normally say go live with 50 and expect that 48 might not do what you need them to do. But you're looking for a couple that absolutely nail it for you. And then you can just keep adding over time so we normally start with a bank of 50 and we'll usually be looking to add five to ten every month i take it you have to have a pretty robust follow-up process to monitor who's using your images but not linking to you and reach out to them. yes bane of my life but generally worth it with the with the stats content for whatever reason it just gets linked to so we go and search we we rarely ever find an unlinked mention it's generally just always links where people have found that content as a resource with the creative commons images on our last check, over 6,000 usages, 95 to 96% were not credited correctly the first time. So what we mean is they don't have a link to the end website that we want the link to. And what people do is a combination of either no credit whatsoever, don't like those arseholes, or they'll try to credit by like linking to Flickr or mentioning the brand or they'll have written the link out as a caption on a WordPress image that hasn't turned into a link. So there's all kinds of things that, that can happen that stop someone from who wants to credit from crediting. So we use, there's a few different systems you can use. Copy track is pretty good, if not a little bit slow. Uh, so it used to seem to update like really, really regularly. Now it's like every couple of weeks. A slightly faster one 
that's on the paid side is pickmatch.ca where you just upload your images or hook it up to Flickr and it will do the checks for you. So it'll go off and tell you if somebody's used your image. From there, your manual job is to go and see, did they credit? If they didn't credit, find the email address and then get in touch and just request attribution. So the things that we generally do in all of our attribution emails are we adopt quite a polite, uh, gracious, thank you for using the image tone as opposed to hi, we're the copyright police. And well, it's a thanks for using the image. We include the URL where the image is in place on their site. We include a URL for Flickr, where it was initially uploaded, so that they can see the date it was uploaded. They can see it's authentically does belong to the person we're saying it does. And they can see the attribution instruction as well. So we include that as well. We just say it's this one here. And as per that instruction, if you wouldn't mind just updating the attribution with a link to here, that'd be great. Uh, then we're always keen as well. If someone's tried to credit and it's just that WordPress hasn't turned the link into a link on the caption, we'll even say like it doesn't really matter where the page is for us. You can pop it at the bottom if it's easier. And then we'll normally do one follow up seven days later if they've not got back in touch. And the success rates can vary from like 20% responses to 60% in some cases. But we generally find the better the website, the higher the chance of a response. So like the, the crappy blogs that don't care whether they've attributed properly or not, they're probably not going to get back in touch. But, you know, we've literally sent attribution requests to the BBC and had a response within 24 hours, often with an apology for the fact that it wasn't done correctly the first time. So what we would say is normally the bigger publications do a better job of getting back to you. And if they have a corrections desk, I would always go to the corrections desk over an info or a journalist. We don't tend to email journalists. What is a corrections desk supposed to be for then? Basically, a corrections desk, is my understanding, is that it's basically the department within any publication that's set up to make sure that they haven't screwed up. <laughs> so make sure they're not getting sued, <laughs> you know, anything that's that they're, it could be actually we've published a news story, we've included a complete inaccuracy or we've not licensed something properly or we've, we've credited the wrong person for an image. So the corrections desks are set up for the pure purpose of making sure that if there's supposed to be a credit on something, it's there, that all the facts are accurate. So they tend to be really, really quick to respond. They don't give a crap about your SEO objectives. They don't give a crap about link policies. It's like, we've made a mistake. You've told us what we should have done. It's clear that you're accurate. The, all the information is there predating our post and generally gets corrected quite quickly. Journalists, I find, particularly a lot of freelance journalists, don't even have the access to go in and make the changes. So if there is no corrections desk, we'll generally look for an info at or a contact at and get pointed in the right direction from there. But we do often find that the journalists themselves on the bigger publications are not likely to be the ones going in and correcting licensing errors. Of all the ideas you've tried across all the different different strategies, what kind of ideas tend to work? And have you ever sort of had ideas that you thought were going to work really well, but but just fell flat and, and didn't? And why was that? Yeah, absolutely. I think on content and images, we'll do stuff where we think this is definitely going to work and feel really confident that we've done all the research initially, really confident this is this is going to work. And then it just doesn't. And I think sometimes you can reverse engineer it and you can sort of say, well, actually, do you know what? It was something we did. So I was involved in a campaign a few years ago with an agency and it was about children's screen time. Probably going back, it was five or six years now. 
and it felt like it should work. The data was all really good. Everyone was really confident about the data. Everyone was really confident about the story. The client was really happy with it. The assets looked amazing and it absolutely sank. Like it just, it was rubbish. It was such hard work. We had to repurpose it loads of times. It was really hard work to hit that link target. And actually I look back at that now and I just think, what a patronizing piece of crap. Probably because I've got children now. And you look back at it and you think there's six people involved in that. It's about children and screen time. Not one of us was a parent. Not one of us. Not at our side, not at the client's side. Not one of us was a parent. And we're all like, yeah, this is great. And actually you read it back now and, and the way I look at it now is what a condescending piece of crap. Like, you know, it's almost like preaching at people. So I think sometimes you can step away and have the hindsight that takes like several years and, and having a child to have, which is quite extreme. But I think sometimes things fail because we, we're rarely our own target audience. You know, it's, I think, and it's very easy to get in the space with content, with images, with anything that you're producing of thinking people will love this because I like it. But, you know, like the, the weird spot the difference puzzle images and the where's wally type puzzle images that still work i don't like them but they work every time so i think when things fail a lot of the time on content it's it is the idea i think more often than the execution and i do think that one of the big difficulties that can cause that is having people judge the quality of an idea or the quality of a piece of content based on whether they like it themselves it's a hard habit to get out of because you look at things and just think, well, I like that. So they're going to like that. You know, we all like that, but it's, it's just, it's not always the case at all. I think you can, you can get around it by making sure you've got the right people involved at the beginning, or at least when you get to a certain point in developing anything, sounding it off some of the people who do fall into that target audience, which was a, a giant omission on that piece of content. So in that case, if, if you'd actually you know, showing it to a few parents at that point yeah. before you, you, you proceeded then. And okay. That would have been all that it would have taken, I think, is just to sit down with a couple of people who've got children aged two to five and say, what do you think? And I'm pretty confident one of them would have turned around and said, what a piece of shite, because that's what I say now. So well, there you go. So you mentioned there your uh, Where's Wally or Where's Waldo for our American uh, listeners and these puzzle type content. I've heard you refer to this in the past as wanky content. What is wanky content and how does one do it? <laughs> yeah, these little puzzle images, this started in 2016 and I do refer to it as wanky content quite flippantly just because, because I, kind of just, I just look at it and every time I see it, I just think, why does it work? But this is a good example of me not being the target audience. So you'll have seen them everywhere. It's, you know, like here's a sea of jellyfish, spot the carrier bag, or here's a sea of $1 notes, find something else. Like there's, you know, it's, it's just that where's Wally style content over and over again. And in 2016, we tried one for a dancewear client and it was find a flamingo or find a ballerina in a sea of flamingos, no less. And it got hundreds of links. And it was, it was a Hannah, a, a girl in my team at the other agency. And she was like, I really want to go like, I really want to try this out. This is not going to take long. I only need like, I think she was saying she needed two hours of a designer and two hours of someone for outreach. And I was like, fine, give it a go. I was like, I ain't taking this from the client's budget though. This is, this is training budget because <laughs> wait for this disaster. Off I go. I got hundreds of links. I was like, you have 
got to be kidding. Like, uh, so then we did it again and again and fast forward five years and this stuff is still working. We did one as recently as Christmas. And I don't think you get the same returns now. So we're talking like maybe 10, 20, 30 maybe links. But they're all really top tier sites like Reader's Digest, love it. Woman's Day, love it. Daily Mail will publish them quite happily and never link. But then what we can do is when the Daily Mail do it, what we'll tend to do is we'll take the image that we've got and once it's been run, we'll upload it to Flickr and license it Creative Commons. And then all the hundreds of outlets internationally that will pick it up and copy from the Daily Mail, we can pursue with attribution requests. So there's the ways around doing it. But yeah, I mean, simple puzzles like spot the difference or where's this thing in here? And the main reason it works, I mean, I've spoke to journalists about this, is they're measured on social interaction. In a lot of cases, a lot of their objectives are traffic, social comments. If you read the comments on the Daily Mail, not something I'd advise you do regularly, but if you read the comments on the Daily Mail on some of these puzzles, some people are like, oh, what a load of crap. It only took me five seconds or easy. Uh, you get people like, this isn't journalism, but they're getting comments. And people literally show them saying, oh, look, Daily Mail doing this crap again. Like, but you've just shared it. And they do. They do get a lot of interaction. It's the kind of thing where if I see somebody on my Facebook sharing something like that, I usually unfriend them. But um, it does other people. I'm not the target audience for it. And it meets how they're measured. Just like, well, yeah. And it's, I mean, over lockdown, for example, some of the journalists were saying, this is just a pleasant distraction for a lot of people. Just mind off, easy, consume content, pretty uncontroversial yeah, and I, I still refer to it as wanky content because I can't find a better phrase for it. Like, it's the images always look great, you know, and whenever um, Ali in here designs these, they always look great. So it's certainly no reflection on, on the design, but it's just why why does it work? I don't know why it works. It still works. It's uh, And for as long as it does, we'll continue to do it. Is the approach there then also to go with like a reverse engineer what works and maybe adapt it to, to your industry? Or is there any special tactics for coming up with the idea here? Yeah, we do like to keep it relevant where we can to what the client does. So if it's dancewear client, there's usually like a ballet shoe hidden in something or a ballerina or a tutu so that at least you've got something that you can very loosely tie in and suggest is relevant not always sometimes we literally just go i think we had a, a witch's hat over halloween um that was in a sea of something that was nothing to do with what the client does but i think sometimes if you can keep it relevant that makes sense and for us the media list on these things is so small we're sending out to like 30 journalists tops usually with these the ones that we know are using them so you can literally just go to Google today, type in brain teaser, go to Google News, find the latest thing that's gone live. And there's plenty of them going live all the time. Everybody's doing them and reverse image search it and just take a look at who is publishing these the top journalists from there and then contact them uh, and use whatever word they've used. So if they've used the word brain teaser, use brain teaser. If it's puzzle, use puzzle in your subject. So you know that they're running these kind of things. You've got one. It's not like it's the sort of thing that needs, you know, it's not like a big study where the quality of the data needs vetting or a third party expert needs to come in and make sure it's tricky enough. It's quite easy content for a journalist to sort of say, yeah, I'm doing this. This works. Put it live if that's the kind of thing they're on. And there are like um, it's often the female desk at the Daily Mail that does this stuff. Just easy consume content. And I mean, I'm definitely not the target audience for it. But there are some logical reasons as to why it does work. 
And what tactics do you have for the future or where do you kind of see this type of link building going in the future? Maybe stuff that you haven't tried yet. Yeah, I think you could get more complicated with the the puzzle type content. I think you could probably do more like interactive, you kind of get into the realm of almost creating games then really that are easy and bed. I definitely think there's still scope for that. And you see all the time there's some amazing creative digital PR content getting done that just gets more and more creative all the time um, with the big visuals. Uh, desk research actually at the center of a lot of content that still does well is data of some description whether it's someone who's gone off and researched what time entrepreneurs get out of bed or they've done a survey you know there's usually data at the center of most of it so i think the areas of scale for us are the areas where we certainly see i'm I'm sure this spot the difference type thing at some point is going to stop working the returns are already diminishing a little bit I think images um, will probably continue to be quite a big thing. We see more usage and actually even the rise of banks like Pixabay and Unsplash hasn't diminished Creative Commons usage. Um, So I think that assets that people constantly need to use, like images on websites or video potentially, if you've got like stock video people can use and statistics that back up their own stories. So for us, I think it's just a case of keep it simple. Like, yeah, content's always going to get more creative on the PR side. Um, And there's some agencies out there now doing some absolutely amazing creative content that just gets, and it's always worth keeping keeping an eye on agencies to see what they're doing. And it's always really good to reverse engineer what they're looking at. Neomam do some amazing stuff. Verve, Rise at Seven. There's a lot of creative stuff that's going on that's always worth reverse engineering and understanding and understanding the value of that beyond links. But I think when you're talking about pure play link building and SEO, for me, I would be putting all my eggs in things like passive resource assets. So statistics pieces, templates, stuff that you do like research into negative impacts of caffeine, things that are timeless and assets that people just need. I mean, we go back and we look at in 2005, how the BBC was linking or how big news sites were linking out before SEOs tried manipulating it. And it was linking to resources and sources. So we just, I think if we bring it back to the very basics. It's just creating those. And it's easier, I think, to time relevance wise as well. I think it's much easier to go to a health client and say, we're gonna commission a study into stress and anxiety than it is to sort of go to them and say we're going to assess 500 movies to see you know how many minutes in it is before somebody has a health crisis you know so I'm a big fan of the creative content we do a bit of it but for me the scale is in pretty keep it simple basic resources that users need. Excellent so is there anything that I haven't asked you today that I should have asked you? I don't think so. Okay great well Thanks for coming on the show. Where should people go if they want to learn more about you or get in touch or if they need some help with this stuff? Uh, StacyMcNaught.co.uk is the website. Uh, I'm on Twitter as well at StacyCav, S-T-A-C-E-Y-C-A-V. And to be honest, I usually respond to tweets faster than I respond to anything else. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll uh, put links to the website and to your social profiles in the uh, show notes for this episode. Thanks again, Stacy, for coming on. Cheers. Thanks for having me. If you guys uh, enjoyed this episode today, then make sure to leave us a like, subscribe, whatever podcast player you're listening to this in, then leave us a review or give us some kind of positive signals that you like this stuff. Because Gail and I, when we're deciding who to have on and what type of shows we want to look at, 
we actually use these user metrics, these signals. And this is especially important for you guys on YouTube. So leave a comment, leave us a like, subscribe. That really helps the show out as well. We'll be back next week on Monday with a, another episode. So we'll see you then. Mm-hmm.